Would you please give your attention now to Avery as she reads God's word for us. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and, the f- and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word now in this very common parable that many of us have read that we know as children, but for some of us this is new, and I pray that you'll take this very simple story and that you'll help the gospel to drop from our head to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of Scripture is important. Every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all one story, comprised of 66 books. Not many different stories. One story, 40 different authors, 1,600 years. But there are some parts of Scripture that are arguably more famous than others. And I, if I were to be a betting man, I would wager that the Sermon on the Mount is probably, arguably, the most famous passage in all of Scripture because of its beautiful, beautiful application to life. Have you ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? It's like an extremely famous sermon, right? And so... It's appropriate, don't you think, as Christians, for us to dive into the Sermon on the Mount and have a series of sermons on the sermon, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, not by Paul, not by Peter, not by John, but by Christ himself. It was the Sermon of Sermons, many Puritans and scholars have said. And yet, while no other piece of Scripture, arguably, is as well known as the Sermon on the Mount, No part of Scripture is as misunderstood as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the clearest thing we have to a Christian manifesto. A manifesto is is a public, is a declaration of a public policy or a declaration of what your public behavior ought to be in light of some ideology that you hold. There's famous manifestos in the past, the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, manifestos all throughout the history of Western Europe. This is the closest thing we have to a Christian manifesto because it comes from the mouth of your Lord to his disciples who are struggling over what it means now that we are called to be his disciples, how are we to live? What are we to do? Don't you want to live a blessed life? Like, don't you want to know what to do when you're angry? Don't you want to know what Jesus thinks about divorce or money or prayer? Don't you want to know what Jesus thinks about the judgment? Don't you want to know what Jesus thinks about your anxiety? Listen, it's all here. 
in these three glorious chapters of chapters 5 to chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. And we're going to study it beginning this week, and we're going to take it all the way to Advent at least. But to study any good piece of literature, to study any good work, any, um, any um, manifesto, you have to not just start at the beginning, but sometimes you have to start at the end. And today we're going to start at the very end of this very famous sermon, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. If you're note takers, pay attention here. He preached the Sermon on the Mount to give us wisdom for obedience and light of who we are in him. He preached the Sermon on the Mount not to show you ways to perform to get your heavenly Father to love you more because he sees your good works. He preached the Sermon on the Mount not as many Christians believe, many Christians, because it's a picture of the way we are going to live and act in the millennium once Christ comes again. This is not a sermon in history in order to be a future application sermon. No, Jesus preaches the sermon now in history for his disciples today to give us wisdom for obedience in light of who we are in him. But Matthew puts this sermon in his gospel at the very beginning, just after Jesus calls his disciples, right then, Jesus could have chosen anything he wanted to put in order to help the Jewish people to whom he was writing this gospel, in order to help the Jewish people connect with the words and the works and the uh, significance of the Messiah. He could have put anything he wanted to, but Matthew starts with this sermon. Why? Well, I think this text shows us. In Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27, you've got a parable. It's actually the third of three final parables that Jesus gives us. But here's the parable. You've heard it before. There are two men building two houses. The first man builds his house on the foundation. The second man builds his house on the sand. The rains come. One of their houses crumbles to the dust. The other house stands. Jesus doesn't explain it. His point is very obvious to his hearers. And then it says in the text that they were amazed at the authority with which he taught because he did not teach just like another one of the Johnny-come-lately wannabe messiahs of the ancient Near East. Jesus taught with authority. What was he trying to teach the Jews? Let's look. Let's begin with the end. Jesus is preaching this sermon to whom? It's okay to flip back in your Bible a couple of chapters and look. It says that after he'd done all these amazing miracles and works, Jesus goes to a mountain and he sits and he begins to preach. And he sits because that's the way people in the ancient Near East used to teach. The teachers would sit and his disciples gathered around him. And behind his disciples, you can imagine there being 12 men on the front row, as it were. And then there are hundreds, arguably, behind them, listening, hanging on to every word that Jesus is saying. He's not... He is not preaching. He is not preaching to people who don't believe in him. He's preaching to those who do. And so often when you read the, Lord's, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when you hear the Lord's words, many of you may be tempted to think that Jesus is like comparing Christians with non-Christians in this sermon. 
But he's not comparing Christians with non-Christians. He is comparing professing Christians with professing Christians. And Jesus is trying to make one very, very clear point. What is his point? Well, let's look at the similarities between these two men and these two houses. And let's find what that point is. Let's look at the two men. Remember, Jesus isn't comparing Christians and non-Christians. He's comparing professing Christians and professing Christians. He tells this story. All right, the two men. Let's look at them. Here are two men building two houses. How are these men similar? Do they both have the same desire to build a house? Yes, they have the same desire. They both want to have a place to put their family. They both want to have a safe place where there's a roof and there are four walls and maybe there's windows and, you know, maybe they go to Kimball's and buy some hardware to put on their doors and on the window seals and they build a house. They have the same desires, exact same desires. Well, what about their tastes? Well, Jesus doesn't differentiate between the way the houses look. They have the exact same tastes. They shop at the same places, perhaps, for their, uh, their work. They, they, they build, they, maybe they choose the same color brick. You, many of you have chosen the, count, the, the, the granite countertops in your kitchen. Maybe they chose the same granite. There's, ex, there's nothing that's different between these two men. They're exactly the same in their desires to build a house, in their tastes, what they like. Like, don't you see that all over the place? Like, there can be people who have the exact same desires, exact same tastes living. Where do they live? They don't live, one on a farm, one in the city. No, it says they, they live near each other. They're in the same weather pattern. The same storm took them both out. Or took one out, at least. So here are two men, same desires, same tastes. They have the same location. Maybe they were even next-door neighbors. What about the houses? Well, the houses look very similar. There's nothing significant about the difference between those two houses. They, um, they may have, have actually looked like the exact same from the outside. Same floor plan on the inside even, perhaps. Same even color carpet. You get the point. Two houses, two men, from the outside looking in, absolutely identical. Same desire, same tastes, same location. Same external appearance. Now, why is this important? Because there can be two people who profess the name of Jesus Christ on your block, even in your own home. Maybe it's even you. But yet have something that's utterly and completely different about them. Like, have you ever met somebody who's, who's, who's not a Christian? Not a Christian. And you're, and you're blown away by how nice they are. Right, how generous they are in giving their money, how they're so kind with their mouth and their language. They're so affirming of you. It's like, listen, if, if there was like, 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 they're like a coach. They're just, they're wonder, people are drawn to them. And yet, when you ask them about their religious preference, they're completely agnostic or maybe they're even um, very opposed to Christianity because of the hurt they've seen through the years of the church. Like, you know these people, right? Some people... My professor at Dallas Seminary, John Hanna, used to say, are endowed with more common grace than Christians are endowed with saving grace. 
there are some people who are a whole lot nicer than you are. And you're pretty nice. How much more could it be the case between two professing Christians? Jesus' point in preaching to the disciples is not that your outward behavior is what differentiates you from the world. Jesus' point to his disciples is that there is something more that Christians have that they bring to the table that differentiates you from the world. And everything you read on the Sermon on the Mount is based upon this one central and crucial point. And what is that point? For Matthew, it was assumed, and so he didn't explain it. But if you look over in Luke chapter 6, Luke makes it very explicit. He says in Luke chapter 6, the same sermon told from a different vantage point includes some of the same aspects of the sermon and some different aspects. Same sermon, we believe, although scholars are, are divided exactly on how that breaks down. But the very, very similar points, it seems to be the same sermon that Luke approaches at a different angle than Matthew does. But here's what Luke says about the same point Jesus makes. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Verse 48 of Luke 6, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. When the wind and the floods arose and the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The difference between the two men, not their external appearance at all, it's that one of those men dug deep. What does that mean? What does it mean to dig deep as a Christian? Well, what I think Jesus' point to his disciples is, is this. You cannot begin to live the Christian life until you recognize who you are in Christ. When I say who you are in Christ, this is what I mean. That the Father sees you and me now because of the work of Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. When he looks at you, he only sees perfection because he sees his Son and there are some professing Christians who miss that very important doctrine of the church, of Jesus himself. That is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't take 80% of your sin. He took 100% of your sin. And he even took the sin that you don't even know this sin. He took all of it. He took every bit of the Father's white-hot fury against sin. Jesus absorbed that blow for you, every bit of it. And therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, you are able to go and live a countercultural life before the world that they may praise your Father in heaven because of what Christ has done for you. Never, never should we obey in order to get God to love us more. Friends, He can't love us anymore. He loves us infinitely. Do you know that? Some of you have been coming to church your whole life, and yet you've never heard that. You leave week after week after week believing that there are three more ways that you can be a better Christian. Another book to read, a podcast series to listen to, 
a new trend in the evangelical subculture that you need to now become a slave to. And God will see you and be pleased. Listen, the reason, the reason why you're becoming in the image of God is because you are his child. And he wants you to obey his word because of who he's made you. And in order to do that, you have to dig deep. And by digging deep, I do not mean that you do more things for God. By digging deep, what I actually mean, what Luke actually means is that you stop performing for God. And you let this intellectual gospel and all of your head knowledge about the Bible drop into your heart. And you recognize the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that the way up is down. And the way to grow in your relationship with God is repentance. That's the hardest thing in the world for you to do. I know you. I know your stories. It's hard to admit that, you're, that you need to repent because you want to be so right. And I know that's true because it's true of me. Repentance is the way up in the kingdom. And if we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount and if we're going to study it for what it is, you have to first of all recognize that these commands are no less powerful commands and that they are things that we should do. But you do them in light of who you are and you do them with brokenness because it's only by the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit, the Westminster Larger Catechism tells us, that we can grow in our sanctification. And there is so much confusion right now in the evangelical world about sanctification. There are people who say, listen, you're saved by grace. Justification by faith is the central doctrine of the proclamation of the gospel. I know I'm using a lot of lingo, but just stay with me. Justification is the idea that God accepts you as righteous in his sight, forgiving you of all your sins and imputing to you the merit or the record of Jesus. And you are justified at a point in time in history where you were dead in your trespasses and sins and then at a certain point, after your justification by faith alone, you are accepted, you are in, you are his child. You can never lose that if you really are his. But sanctification is the process by which you become more and more like the image of God, more and more holy. And there's this incredible battle right now in the evangelical subculture. If you read blogs, then you're, you're just, you can make, become a slave to this, about what's the relationship between God accepting us as righteous in his sight and obeying his word. Here's the relationship. You are to obey the commands of the Lord because you are righteous in his sight. Not to get righteous in his sight. And therefore, Jesus' commands don't become burdensome to you. Otherwise, they're going to be like a rock around your neck. And if you read where God, Jesus, will say to you, don't, don't worry about your anxiety. Listen, don't be anxious about your life, what you will wear. Look at the lilies of the field. Look, if you read that as somebody who's trying to not be anxious to get God to love you, you're just going to worry about whether God loves you more. But if you read it as somebody who says, I know every anxiety of your heart and I love you 
and you're my child. Just like your own son or daughter, you pick them up in your arms and you sing over them their favorite lullaby, reminding them of your presence that things are going to be okay because you're with them. So friends, when you approach the Sermon on the Mount, approach the Sermon on the Mount as clear commands to his church that we run to in order to be countercultural, but we do so because we are his children, not to become his children. Do you hear me when I say that? If you miss this, then you are like the man who in the ancient Near East found a good plot of land and near the Sea of Galilee where the sea would rush onto the water and then it would recede. Listen, that sand looked harder than a rock. So this guy who's building a house on the sand is not an idiot, even though Jesus says he's a fool. I mean, he's standing on the sand and it's not moving. It's hard. Some of you are very, very good people. And you are righteous when people look at you externally. You give your money away. You have great kids. You look like you have it all together. But human performance against the backdrop of an infinitely holy God is like standing on the sand bed of the Sea of Galilee. It seems hard until you dig down into it and it crumbles away. Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, is the foundation upon which you cannot lay anything except your whole life. You can't lay part of yourself on Jesus as your foundation. He needs all of you. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is in Jesus. Nobody can lay your good works. Nobody can lay the fact that you haven't had alcohol in 25 years. Nobody can lay the fact that you give your money away. Nobody can lay down the fact that you've got great kids. Listen, it's Jesus' work and his work only for you that saves you. Do you believe that? It will free you up to come to this text because why? There may not be an obvious difference between who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God. Just look around Owasso, Oklahoma. There are so many churches in the city. There's a lot. And we want to support every one of them. Many of them are doing fantastic work and we are for them and we want them to preach the gospel all the more loudly and clearly. But you can have two men and two houses, same desires, same tastes, same external appearance, and the storms come, one of those houses falls. You cannot wait till your house is built before you get tested. You have to lay your foundation at the beginning. It's too late if you wait for the storm to come. That misses Jesus' point totally. Jesus' point is, you build your foundation disciples, unlike all the Pharisees, unlike the Jews to whom Matthew is writing, you build your foundation on the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, more than anywhere else, I think, and as I read it and I meditate on this text, confronts us with himself. And he preaches this sermon to Owasso, Oklahoma, to challenge the reason why we want to be good people. And he says... Come to me. Live like I've called you to live, but do it in light of who I've made you to be. And when you start at the end, if you begin at the end, 
you'll find that you'll end up at the very beginning, just like so much of Christianity, you end up at repentance, the same way you came into the kingdom. It's the same way that you progress in it. Is your foundation built on Jesus Christ? Are you willing to dig deep, even in the context of the service this morning? Are you willing to come to this table in just a moment and repent of the way that you've built your house on the sand and to enjoy the stability, the structure, the favor of God? Because that's what we really need. We really need to know that we're loved because many of us do not believe it. Your Savior loves you. And through the sound of my voice, hear your Savior saying to you, I love you. Run to me in repentance and joy now as you come to this table and build your house upon me, who is the foundation upon which you then can go and build a beautiful masterpiece to my glory, be it a house or your life. Can we do that together? Let's build on the foundation who is Jesus Christ. For no other foundation can be laid except that which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as his people run to this table and the joy of repentance. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to rest in your finished work for us, not relying on our deeds but obeying your word because of who you've made us to be. Father, there are so many of us who live next door to people who look um, like fantastic Christians. And yet, Lord, we should think about our own hearts and the fact that we sometimes look like fantastic Christians. And some of us, Lord, have been running from you for a long time. So before we get into this text, throughout the course of the fall, oh, Holy Father, would you help us to look to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the only foundation for our life and godliness. And may we experience your joy as we walk in obedience because we know that you're proud of us and that you love us. And may that give us wind in ourselves. And may that give us stability under our feet to rest in your finished work for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.